0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres.
1: Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, Mr. Dave Baseball Martino. (laughs) I'm back again. You're back again. Back again and still and rolling. And, that's uh, right. I still can't get the the high pitch on my voice yet. Still not back to normal. Oh, so you're still not feeling great? Well, you know, it's get better every day. But I just notice I <laughs> when I go to say <laughs> something, my mouth said something different. Ah, it's not following my directions. Yeah, that's going to be your excuse. <laughs> yeah, that's you know. <laughs> And, of course, we're all ready now. They've got a new drink out for spring. It's the C- Cinnamon Sweet Cream Cold Brew from Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the problem with that one is I can't do that. I'm too old now. Afternoon, and it's it's the uh, extra caffeine. Oh, no, it'll keep you up all night. Yeah, just a regular regular <laughs> one keeps me up, never mind this. It's like, what do they want me to do with this? Um, so, so I'll just push this aside and, uh, forget about that. And, um, anyway, that would, so we'll, we'll talk more later. Cause I guess you've got a movie review. I'm sure after the show, um, mm-hmm. movie for us to avoid watching. <laughs> <laughs> Cause there's not much on anymore, you know, No. Yeah. too many, you know, no, avoid them all too many channels. <laughs> I'll go back to Perry Mason. I'm in chapter five, so I'm in. <laughs> anyway. Uh, well, today we are going back in time. You know, of course, we've got, um, a writer on that's kind of, uh, we'll talk historical fiction, I guess is kind of a, a good way of categorizing it. And the book is, co- of course, is called The Deadliest Deceptions and it's a collection of Miriam Bat Isaac short stories. Now the writer is with us. And that's June Trope. Thank you for being here.
0: I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. But I do have something to say to Dave before we get too far away from that. Dave, when you get a little bit older, you can drink all of those Starbucks drinks you want, and nothing will keep you up.
1: (laughs) It mixes with his whiskey. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's true. You know, he's a mess. He never goes to bed. No. Terrible. Up all night. June, 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 June. Now, you've written a, a few books here, and uh, you seem to focus a lot on um, historical time and, and Rome and that. Um, where, do, you, do, you, do you know where your interest came from this?
0: Yes, I do. Although Rome occupied Alexandria, my stories all take place in and around Alexandria, Egypt, 2,000 years ago. I've always been interested in the Roman era, but I was particularly drawn to Alexandria because of a woman who lived there 2,000 years ago, and her name was Maria Hebrea, My background is in chemistry. I had many courses in chemistry before I ever heard of Maria Hebrea, who was, for 1,500 years, the most celebrated woman in the Western world for her work in alchemy. I discovered her accidentally, you might say, because I was taking a course on the historical development of concepts in chemistry.
1: I thought it was Liz Taylor.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Alexandria, isn't that um, where where the queen, the pharaoh, was buried? Oh, yes. You know, out to sea somewhere. Wasn't she? They don't know really where she is, I think, to this day. Isn't it something like that?
0: Right. They don't. And other important people at that time, I'll call it from Tomali, told me his time, in ancient Egypt. They were buried in Alexandria. There was a place, a building, a beautiful building that was essentially their tomb filled with funereal objects. And there are all different stories about how the different tombs were invaded to take out the gold and run the... Business of the city of Alexandria. But Miriam had nothing to do with that. She's my protagonist, and neither did the woman I modeled her on, Maria Hebrea. You see, nobody had heard of Maria Hebrea at her time because she was an alchemist, and alchemy was forbidden. The practice was regarded by the emperors as a capital offense. And so, while all the mystical arts kept their findings secret, she and her colleagues were especially careful not to record in their time who they were. But she did come to be, as I said, very famous. She was somebody I had never heard of in part because chemistry is taught from the perspective of contemporary knowledge. No one goes back and teaches how the concepts evolved. But I did take a course on the historical development of concepts in chemistry. Despite all the years I had studied chemistry, though... Not only had I never heard of her, I had no idea how any of the concepts evolved. So when the professor assigned a paper to us on a historically significant concept, I had no idea what to write about. The time was ticking away and I became ever more nervous because I couldn't think of a topic I decided in desperation to go to the university library stacks and see if anything struck me, and that's exactly what happened. Something struck me.
1: Something struck me.
0: I had raised my eyes to the heavens for inspiration, and I was a little anxious. There were some tears there, so they were a little blurry, and I didn't realize I bumped into a bookcase, and a heavy book fell out of the shelf onto my foot and opened up to a page about Maria Hebrea. Well, I I was absolutely startled. First of all, my foot hurt like the dickens. But I did pick up the book, and here I saw an article about a woman who, as I told you, was... Famous not only after her time, she was a secret during her time, but about 400 years after her time, she was discovered and she was written about and famous through what I would call the scientific revolution of about the 1600s. So that's how I happened to find out about her. And I wrote the paper about her, of course. But 30 years later, after I retired, I resurrected my memory of her. Actually, I'd never stopped thinking about her whenever I'd stop for red light or wait my turn at a checkout line. I'd wonder what it was like for her when she had to elbow through a crowd along the main boulevard of Alexandria in the first century of the common era. I'd even pretend that I was Maria Hebrea. I tried to feel the morning sun on my back, as she must have felt it. Perhaps she even had to elude a camel caravan, a curtain litter, or a groaning ox cart. But all I could conjure up was the traffic on 42nd Street.
1: Yeah, I think I've seen you in the store. <laughs>
0: so she was perfect for me because nothing was known about her I could invent anything about her I wanted and here I had a protagonist who was intelligent and intrepid so she was perfect she was just like Nancy Drew who I'd read about as a kid she and Nancy Drew risked their lives for their craft and guarded the secrecy of their work. So, I had the perfect protagonist for a mystery series.
1: Well, I'm wondering, you mentioned uh, Maria Habrea, even though she was kind of unknown, she became famous. Um, h- how did that happen? How did she get rediscovered?
0: Well, she was rediscovered because, although she wasn't known personally, her inventions were very important to the field of alchemy, and I'll even mention to you, because I believe that you know of one of her inventions, she invented the double boiler, everybody who's melted chocolate in the kitchen knows about the double boiler, and is profiting from the discoveries of Maria Hebrea, but of course, never mind your love for chocolate, especially in Starbucks, I'm thinking about Dave right now. I'll bet you get those chocolate (laughs) cappuccinos. But aside from the double boiler, she also invented the distillation apparatus. And that has been used for millennia. Every chemistry student uses it now to uh, create some kind of concoction, but it was she who invented it. And of course, we know about distilled liquor. And that, of course, the distillery is big business today. So that's how she came to be known, through her inventions. But very little, as I said before, could be found out about her. So I decided to make her my protagonist. I changed her name to Maria Miriam Bot Isaac, and I created a family for her. I gave her a twin brother who was a fierce athlete, he became a famous gladiator, so I could use the gladiator business as a piece of my stories. And she had a tyrannical father who coerced her into choosing duty over desire. And I gave her a servant girl who was five years her senior and her name was Phoebe, who became her best friend and sidekick. So that's how I was able to invent Miriam but Isaac out of Maria Hebrea.
1: How close to the original character do you do you stick with? I mean, obviously, I guess there's only so much you can really find out about the the true original Maria because um, because so much was so secret. I guess they con- didn't they consider like. Uh, alchemy or chemistry and all that wasn't that kind of almost witchcraft in a sense
0: yes the emperor said it should be punished by death because he was afraid the alchemists in synthesizing gold would undermine his currency and overthrow the empire so that was one reason that it was forbidden. Only later, though, did it become associated with witchcraft. In the beginning, alchemy was really a legitimate forerunner of chemistry. It was based on Aristotle's principles, so it had a different theoretical framework but it was the forerunner of chemistry because it was an experimental science and it was actually concerned with much more than just synthesizing gold. The idea of Aristotle was that all materials are essentially the same, whether they be metals or even living things like human beings. So my alchemist, Miriam Bot Isaac, was particularly interested in improving human life, improving, I'd say rejuvenating human life, making human life better, free from illness, more than a direct interest in synthesizing gold. But, Alan, it was a legitimate science. Only later on was it turned into some kind of charlatan based witchcraft. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you, Isaac Newton himself wrote well over a million words about alchemy although he kept it a secret not so secret because he was famous but by the time of Isaac Newton Aristotle's theories weren't the prevailing framework for interpreting chemistry
1: so obviously you started with characters the character were the primary start of, of your stories of this seri- series um What came next? Was it it the plot, Uh, you know, a story, or was it actually um, the setting?
0: Well, it actually was plot. I had the character, but plot was most important to me at the beginning. Plot was most important to me because I wanted to write mysteries. And so I had to manipulate the plot so, on one hand, I could protect the identity of the perpetrator, but on the other hand, give a fair experience, a satisfying experience to the reader. So they should be able to have a fair chance with clues to figure out who the perpetrator was. So I really did emphasize plot. At the same time, you see, that I started, uh, that I found out about Maria Hebrea, I put her in the back of my mind. I was working full time. I certainly didn't have time to write mysteries, but writing a mystery was an objective of mine almost from childhood. You see, I had a life of crime even as a little girl when I was eight years old. I was in fifth grade, and the girl sitting next to me was reading a Nancy Drew mystery. So after I borrowed hers, I swallowed up all the other mysteries that I could read, and eventually graduated to Agatha Christie, and then to Sherlock Holmes, and then to The latest ones, by the time I read Sherlock Holmes, I had honed my observation skills and I wanted to be a detective. I looked for crimes to solve in my neighborhood. They seemed to fall out of the sky for Nancy Drew. I looked for secrets to unravel, puzzles to explain, but to my dismay, no mysteries materialized. Not as they had for Nancy or Sherlock Holmes. So I didn't know what to do with my life. I had dreamed of being a detective. And in my time, when I came of age, women did not become detectives. So I had to finally, after I retired, become a writer of detective stories. That's how I made the leap from Maria Hebrea to Miriam Bott Isaac to write the stories.
1: How much, uh, you must do a tremendous amount of research um, with the time and the placing and and Alexandria and what it would have been like to to live there and, and work and be in the community. just uh, They must have had a totally different lifestyle, different things that they did. Um, it must have been... Uh, how much time does that take to put that together?
0: I would say that I've done research for 15 years, and I never know. First of all, that's fun to me, but I never know what I'm going to research. Now, Alexandria was a famous city, especially in the first century. A great deal. I couldn't possibly read everything that was written about Alexandria. And likewise, when my Miriam takes her trips, she goes to other cities that were very well known. Most recently, she went to Ephesus. And because the Apostle Paul went to Ephesus in the first century of the Common Era, there's so much written about it. The buildings, the floor plans, the architecture, everything is so clear in my mind. So many papers are written about all the places Paul went to in Ephesus and where the emperors went as well all of the famous people. Remember in Alexandria there was the medical school and the great library? All these places have been written about. The landmarks are so clear. So I picked a city that was easy to research. On the other hand, I found very difficult things to research. One of my stories has a viper that gets loose. And while I was a student of biology and a serious student, I never remembered studying the locomotion of a viper on a marble floor. Well, I had to know that in order to do my story. And then, just a few days ago, I was researching the Roman view of tattoos. You know, now, tattoos are really de rigueur. They're considered cool. They're considered in fashion. But I got into tattoos because, as I told you, my Miriam's brother became a gladiator. And gladiators among prisoners of war and slaves, some slaves, and some soldiers were tattooed. So I wanted to research how the Romans felt about tattoos. They were not works of art. They were not considered anything but functional. If anything, they were badges of shame. So the idea of tattoos, I had to research just the other day for the sake of Miriam's brother. I never know what I'm going to research and I never stop.
1: Well, how, how do you get into the minds of your historical characters um, since they lived so long ago? Um, are, are you pulling from the historical record uh, or is it all imagination? How do you do that?
0: A lot of it is imagination but I have to say Dave that people are still people and there's still such things as greed and murder and love and choices, wealth and poverty, pestilence. There's, uh, urban blight. Alexandria was a splendid city, but it had its pestilential districts where there was, uh, pigeon. <laughs> Oh uh, pigeon dew crusted on the water fountains it was uh, there was graffiti smeared all over. <laughs> it was not so very different, really. I did study graffiti during the Roman Empire too. A completely different view of graffiti than there's graffiti now, but anyway, certain things about humans. Have not changed. And that's why I think my books are appealing to modern readers. While they're visiting an exotic place and becoming familiar with the culture, they're at the same time seeing into the raw innards of human beings.
1: When you're writing one of these books and someone takes it home and reads it, there's so much to take in, you know, learning the city and, and the atmosphere and the, and the vibrations, the story, the, 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 the characters. What is it you hope they take away from the book? Is it something more than entertainment?
0: Oh, yes. I want the reader to see that justice prevails in the end. And I want them to see that human character and all its foibles hasn't really changed over the millennia. Miriam is motivated by justice, and she pursues it. She pursues it so diligently It's that important to her that she risks her very life. I want them to see that justice is that valuable.
1: How do you know when the book is done? Like, how do you, with so much going on and stuff, how do you know, or what is it that makes you realize that it's completed?
0: Okay, writing a novel is very much... An art embedded in the fads and fancies of our day. I write a contemporary novel. If you read contemporary mysteries, for example, you'll see they're very different from the ones written even 100 years ago. Readers had more time then. The whole style of unfolding a story was different. I'm just thinking now of David Copperfield, which was one of my favorite books. But the language, the erudition in the language was different style. It was written for the highly literate class that had plenty of time to cozy up at the end of the evening and take their time in letting the story unfold. Today, writing... A commercial, popular novel isn't like that. The woman who's picking out the book is in the bookstore. Her three-year-old is jerking on her skirt. The money has run out of the meter. She's in the bookstore. She has to pick up something fast, and she'll read maybe the first page, if you're lucky. Maybe she'll just read the first paragraph. The whole style of writing today is the book has to get off the ground very quickly with an inciting incident. And not only that, but the book follows the popular fad. It has a particular story arc. So even though your story is unique, it follows the fashion of writing a book of that genre, and so with the story arc, you kind of know the pattern of how to pace your
1: story. So, what are your influences? How do you how do you uh, gain influences to write historical fiction?
0: I would put it this way, Alan: It's how do I get an influence, a nudge. To wash the dishes, make the beds, serve the supper, clean up, make a grocery list, and fold the laundry. I'm willing to cheat on all those things, because all I want to do is escape. I want to escape it all. I want to escape this world. I want to escape into the world of Alexandria. So it's not hard to get me behind the computer. It's hard to get me in front of the stove.
1: Oh, so basically you have nothing cooked, your dishes are dirty, your house is <laughs> I, I can, I can. I have a mess.
0: I have a pagoda of dirty dishes in my sink.
1: I can see this now, you know, <laughs> get the laundry done. Sounds like me. There
0: there are days I don't even comb my hair. I just roll out of bed and I can't wait to see what happens next. My characters tell me, you know, I know them very well by now. I've been visiting them and they've been visiting me for 15 years. I know them very well and they talk to me now. I play with them now. They're my friends now. I know this sounds a little crazy, but especially during COVID, I didn't have any other friends. The only ones who visited me were my characters.
1: Why did you get them to do the dishes? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you're saying you can, you can hear your characters. Um, do they ever surprise you? Do they ever uh, just kind of go off the rails and just take the plot wherever they want it to go? Or is that are you, in, are you in more control?
0: There are two kinds of writers, of course. We're all a mixture. But one extreme is called the panzers. They fly by the seat of their pants. They don't know what they're going to write about that day. They just wait for that inspiration. And then there are the plotters. I have always been a plotter. I plot everything. Well, I was a teacher. You could never walk into a junior high school classroom and just work off the cuff. My goodness, you better have that carefully plotted. So I am a plotter by nature, but as I've come to know my characters more and more, I listen to them more and more, and I do fly by the seat of my pants a little bit. I let them tell me. What happens is I have a plan for them, and I see it's really totally out of their character. And so they tell me that, and they put me in their place. They won't do that. So it happens, but not not uh, so very often, and certainly not at the beginning. I hold on very tight. That's who I am.
1: How does that de- develop, that kind of... Uh... I don't know what you call it, that kind of uh, creativity with characters that you write about.
0: I don't really know where it comes from. I don't really know where it comes from, how I know them. Except, I have to say, I was very imaginative as a child. My mother used to say to me, and i these were her exact words, June, you've got too much imagination for your own good. That's when she was hollering at me because maybe I did tell my fair share of fibs. So I've always had an imagination. My sister says, and by the way, I have a twin sister, which is why I gave Miriam a twin brother. My twin sister, whom I've been through so much of my life with, she and I both had a difficult childhood. I think everybody, by the way, has a difficult childhood in one way or another. Being a child is very difficult. You have no autonomy. But we had a difficult childhood. And my sister says the way I adapted was that I always made things up. I always lived in my own world. I made up my own world. So in that sense... It wasn't anything new for me. I did it to survive and I just continued to do it as an adult when it wasn't so necessary anymore.
1: So let's talk about one of the key things I think is important because we get we talked about um your main uh protagonist being um alchemist and uh we talked about chemistry and all that stuff. But because you do have a murder Case involved. You've got crimes and things going on. How how do you um, resolve or how do you talk about or explain what kind of policing, as well as forensics and investigations that they had in Alexandria back at that time?
0: Well, they didn't have police. The soldiers acted as police. Alexandria was crawling with Roman soldiers, so. They didn't have police, but they did have a few trained investigators, very few. I guess now I have to tell you that the Romans didn't regard murder the same way we do today. If the people, even citizens, Roman citizens, wanted to kill each other, that was really their own business. And while you might find that hard to believe, let's look at, the way they regarded human life. Certainly, there were more slaves than citizens. Gladiators, the ring was a brutal place. They didn't have the same regard for human life that we have. But Miriam does. Now, Miriam, to be an alchemist, I should tell you, the only alchemists at that time were Jews and she was an observant Jew. She followed Torah law and so she learned to value human life in spite of the ambient culture. Now Alexandria was culturally complicated because you did have Jews there They had special privileges. They lived in their own neighborhood, although it wasn't a ghetto, and they didn't have to live there. But you also had Greeks. It was a Greek city. Alexander the Great was Greek. And then you had the Romans. It was also a stop on the Silk Road. So you had the infusion of a lot of Asian ideas. So we have this belting pot, but the Romans were the rulers, they occupied the city, and they didn't really value human life. The only times they did were, for example, if a slave tried to kill his master, then all of the slaves owned by the master were crucified. Otherwise, it was only Prisoners of War and uh, other people who might be practicing alchemy, they would be killed. But we don't think of murder in Roman times the same way we think about it today, except Miriam cared. And while some of the books, most of the books deal with murder, they also deal, some of the stories deal with theft. And so, in one of my books, the Temple of Artemis had the treasury of the entire city of Ephesus, and that was looted. Eventually, when the thieves had so much wealth, of course, they were subject to being murdered, and I'm not giving much away when I say that they were, but... Some of the murders were consequential to other crimes, like theft, which certainly did occur.
1: So so they never really um, had any tests or investigations so much. So like if someone was found dead in a room, they would kind of maybe look it over and, oh, that person was stabbed or poisoned maybe. But they didn't go much further than that then.
0: They didn't have the tools. They really only had three tools for forensics. And I have to say that the first forensic autopsy was done on Julius Caesar in 44 before the Common Era, which was almost, well, it was a generation before Miriam. That was the first forensic autopsy. They did many autopsies in the medical school to learn anatomy, but forensics wasn't something that they were particularly interested in unless the person who died was very rich or very famous. So, for example, there was the case of dental characteristics. The Romans had terrible teeth. They had terrible teeth because they had a sweet tooth And they probably didn't have the kind of uh, dental practices, they certainly didn't, that we had, although they did have false teeth and they did do extractions, but not nearly like what we do today with implants, for example. So, by the time someone was an adult, they had a unique dental characteristic. They had unique patterns of tooth decay, and so... They used that pattern of recognition, if it was somebody famous, to bother to identify who was killed. So, for example, one of the most famous cases of all had to do with Agrippina the Younger. She was uh, Nero's mother, and she was Caligula's wife, I believe. She wanted to marry Claudius that's really the main thing she wanted to marry Claudius and she had a rival so she sent her slaves to kill that rival lowly Paulina and then in order to be sure that her rival was killed she demanded the head and inspected Paulina's teeth that's the way she verified that her guard her slaves had killed the right woman, but that's an exception. They didn't ordinarily use dental characteristics. They didn't ordinarily use pattern recognition, and they didn't ordinarily use blood spatters. That came much later and only to the famous. The most famous case with blood spatters is called the Hall of Handprints, if you want to research it. A blind son was accused of killing his father for his inheritance, and uh, investigators saw his blood-spattered hands making intermittent footprints, handprints, (laughs) intermittent handprints on the wall. He was brought to trial... And his defense attorney said, no, he's blind. He wouldn't have put his handprints intermittently on the wall. He would have dragged his bloody hands along the wall. Instead, the defense attorney accused the blind son's stepmother that she killed her husband for his inheritance for her inheritance his money so these were very wealthy or very famous people and those are just the few cases they didn't regularly have much in the way of forensics they didn't have fingerprints they certainly didn't have DNA. Now Miriam had one device though she finds a dead body and she puts her lips, to the belly of the corpse. And she does that to test the temperature. She could tell that he had died very recently. And so that enabled her to at least narrow down the suspects.
1: When you're um, talking about different people that are real, do you get much detail or how, what kind of history do you go by or how do you? Decide how you're going to write about uh, Claudius and uh, and different characters of the past, because um, there's so many different stories about them. You know what I mean?
0: Yes. And by the way, some terrible things have r- been written. Let's say about Nero. Yeah. But modern historians, some of them, have defended him. And certainly the earlier part of his reign, he did a very good job. The empire really thrived by their standards, of course. So, yes, but there's so much written about them. Now, I remember I wrote about Agrippina the Younger, and I hadn't really researched her, but I have a beta reader, somebody who knows about the Roman Empire. And in my story, I said... Someone opens the door and sees a woman who looks just like Agrippina the Younger and giggled. And my beta reader said, she wouldn't have giggled. She would have gasped. This was a very cruel woman. And indeed, she was. So I learned the hard way, you could say, Alan. I learned the hard way that I better do my research about these characters. They are well known. And it's you know no excuse that I not learn about them too.
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it makes for a fuller, especially if someone knows some history. Yeah. It, you know, it makes it more realistic. Right. Right. You know, you know. right. So, so let's talk about how we find June. So, so June, do you have a website? Do you have social media? Where is it that you like to have your fans and readers interact with you or contact you?
0: Okay. I have a social platform, I have a website. It's www. one word, no e on the end, j u n e t r o p .com. That's my website. I also have a presence on Facebook, june trope author, separate words, june trope author. But I keep in touch with my audience mostly because I post a blog every Tuesday afternoon, Eastern Time. I post a blog about some aspect of life in ancient Alexandria and connect it either with one of my stories or one aspect of life today like I'll write about tattoos or graffiti. I think Roman medical practices are very interesting. I write about that, about gladiators. The blogs are short. They're average about 250 words, never go as long as 300 words. But this is a brief chance for my audience to keep in touch with me, to make comments. I get back to them, and every single comment... If you've ever commented, you get a response back from me. So that kind of keeps a lively group going. They know each other because they can read what each other wrote as comments on my blog. And so that's the way I do it.
1: Well, fantastic. We're going to have that up on our website as well as your book so people can find you real easily. Um, Now, of course, your latest book is called The Deadliest Deceptions. Um, Our guest has been the author of that and many other books, uh, June Trope. Thank you very much for being here.
0: Such a pleasure. Such a pleasure to meet you and Dave. Thank you.
1: Thanks, June.
0: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, all shows go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah.
1: Good night.
0: This is been the production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.